Lord, meet us, speak with us, be here now as we come together to your word, Lord Jesus. We thank you. Amen. Sarah Maitland had it all. She was coming of age in the UK in the late 60s and loving it. She was one who was bright. She was pioneering of spirit. She loved the ideas, the intellectual out of the 60s. She loved the protest, the shouting, the discussing and the discussing and the discussing. She tells a great story about how somewhere in the early 70s, when she was a young adult, recently married, pregnant with their first child, she went into the House of Commons in a rather loud protest for a certain sort of bill in which the House of Commons was supposed to have been sequestered, and she broke in with some others. And they were protesting an Equal Rights Movement Act, something in, in UK history of that era. And she was publicly and forcibly removed. And this made it into the papers the next day. And she was very, very scared about what her parents would say. And her mother said, Honey, how can you do that while you are pregnant? Her father, on the other hand, was delighted. Not because he believed in protest, not because, she says, he believed in equal rights, but because his friend was the one who was supposed to keep order in the House of Commons, and he thought his friend was a bit too pompous, and he thought it was hilarious that his friend would have to deal with an interruption from someone he knew. So Sarah's living this loud and boisterous life in the 60s, and she's loving it. She says this, she says, I liked my noisy life. I liked all that talking. All my life I have talked and talked. I love talking. I used to say that if I ever were in who's who, I would put down deipnosophy as my hobby. Deipnosophy means the love of or skill of dinner table conversation, from the Greek deipnos, meaning dinner. She says, I have always loved this word, and I loved the thing itself. I've been lucky enough to know some of the great deipnophicists of my time. She says, it is hard to think of a less silent life. It was, and this is important to me, an extremely happy life. I achieved almost all of the personal ambitions I started out with. I'm a published writer of the sorts of books I want to write and believe in. I have written five novels, including Daughter of Jerusalem, which with Michelle Roberts' first novel, Peace of the Night, was credited with being the UK's first feminist novel, and which won the Somerset Maugham Award in 1979. I've also written a range of non-fiction books, and I have produced a long, steady line of short stories. I've made a living doing freelance things I wanted to do. For nearly 20 years, I had a marvelous life. Then, at the very end of the 80s, for reasons I have not fully worked out, the well ran dry. Sarah Maitland discovered something different. She said, when things changed, and I started not just to be more silent, she was surprised because she found she also, she says, I came to love silence. 
and to want to understand it and hunt it down, both in practice and in theory. I did not feel I was running away from anything. On the contrary, I wanted more. I had it all, and it all was not enough. Silence is additional to, not a rejection of, sociability and friends and periods of deep emotional and professional satisfaction. I have been lucky or graced. In a deep sense, I feel that silence sought me out rather than the other way around. Eventually, Sarah Maitland would go to the University of Durham in England, and she would do a PhD in silence. Eventually, she would buy a cottage, first a little ways outside of London, and then eventually up in Scotland in the middle of a nowhere patch. And she would live in long, deep periods of silence. Friends, in this Advent season, we've been walking through spiritual practices that help us to put ourselves into a posture of expecting God to meet us. We talked the first Sunday of Advent about gratefulness, about gratitude, about saying thanks. And then the second week, Ross helped us to think about contemplative reading of Scripture. And last week, Wendy helped us to think about fasting. This week, we'll be talking about silence. I want to make it really clear. These are not religious things to do. These are not add-to-your-list things to do. These are not, God will be mad at me if I don't do something special during the season leading up to Christmas. I've got to throw something spiritual in things to do. These are ways to fight for your soul. These are tools for keeping the plot, for liberating your soul in these days of incredible distraction and noise and upheaval. We live in a time in which there are so many layers of distraction and upheaval. Many of them valid in and of themselves, some of them completely out of hand, some of them close, some of them far away, the international political map and what on earth is going to happen with that. Inside our bodies, what does it mean to be a human being? In the relationships in our communities, at every level, there's upheaval and change and questions. These are tools, friends, for keeping the plot for soul liberation. And we do them and we learn them in order to be able to be people who in the midst of living in this world, as we are called to live and love in the midst of this world, in order to be able, as we live in the midst of this world, following Jesus to keep the plot, to hold on to the plot. Jesus is one for whom silence was deeply important. There are profound moments in Jesus' life when he walked away from the expected thing of him and walked into something of silence. He did it to prepare for a major task. After he was baptized, he has this massive voice from heaven, my beloved son, Listen to him. Well, you're ready for him to speak, right? And what's he do? He goes out 40 days. 
into silence in the desert. He does it to recharge after hard work. He sends the disciples out into ministry for them to learn and to grow and to push the kingdom forward. And when they come back, he takes them away to rest. He does it to work through grief. When John the Baptist had been beheaded, Jesus withdraws away by himself. Again, time to push forward, right? No. He pulls away. He does it before making a big decision. When he's going to choose the disciples out of the many followers, he goes and spends some time in silence, alone, in prayer, the whole night. He does it in a time of distress. Before he's arrested, he goes into the garden, and he withdraws even from his disciples, and he keeps silence. He does it to focus on prayer. We're told that many times it was his habit that he would go away alone into a quiet or a rough or a wild place to pray. Friends, if Jesus needed silence to keep the plot, right, how much more we need silence to keep the plot? And that is actually good news. But how do we find the strength to do it? So Sarah Maitland has become someone who walks in silence. There's another English intellectual woman named Maggie Ross. Now Maggie Ross is what's called an Anglican solitary. The former Archbishop of Canterbury actually appointed her to the vocation and role of being a solitary. So she is in some spiffy, beautiful, lovely medieval spot at Oxford where she lives as a solitary. Now, I mean, it just let me just get this out of the way. If I can do it at Oxford, <laughs> and if I can go to Blackwell's, the largest bookstore in the world, every once in a while, and if I can go to the pub once a week, and if I can have the occasional curry, then, you know, Cheryl and I will do it for retirement. <laughs> I mean, right? But no, this is her vocation. This is her calling, a woman named Maggie Ross. And she makes a bold claim. She says that interrupting our busy routines and urgencies and efforts by moments that bring silence was the primary thing Jesus' work consisted in. She argues that Jesus' work was primarily to bust in and interrupt people and bring them up short and bring them moments of silence so that God's kingdom could get into the cracks. Now, now for my money, she's off by one. I think Jesus' primary work is the cross. But she's, she says, well, this silent stuff was necessary to get ready for people to be able to, to receive that. You put it that way, okay, I'll go with that. Maybe that works. And she says Jesus is not creating these moments in people's lives so that they then go off and do something religious. He's doing it in order to break the routines and break the habits and break the cycles whereby they've learned to just survive or whereby they've learned to try to get ahead or where they've constructed reality for themselves. Jesus breaks in and he creates these awe-inspiring or troubling or simply surprising, whatever they are, moments of silence. And she then argues... You might not, this is, this, I didn't see this one coming. I didn't expect this one. She then argues that what we most need in order to feel that and to have that in our own lives, what we most need is to recover the word behold. She points out that behold is a very frequently occurring word in the Bible, but that modern translations tend to sort of poof it away and put in a few other words in its place because we don't use it in common usage. 
But she also points out that it's actually a rather warm and wonderful word. It has hold in it. It's about drawing near. And she points out that behold is about bringing the mind to a halt. It's not so much wonder as much as I love wonder. I love the dusting of snow we got this morning. I was driving up here and the snow was coming down. I say, thank you, Jesus. There's nothing I love as much as a good, a good bit of snow around Christmas. Like, give us more, more, more. I love the wonder. But this isn't quite the same. This is all. This is a, this is a brought up short, don't know what to say about it. And looking at it, mind interrupted, heart stopped, a moment of awe. Behold is a liminal word. It pushes us to the borders and the limits, and it opens up space for something we otherwise would be too busy to see and to notice. And therefore, behold is about God's presence, which does not mean because it produces all and because it's greater than us and because it interrupts our created ways for ourselves does not mean at all that it's always about God's judgment. It doesn't mean God's angry showing up. Often in the scriptures, behold precedes a moment of incredible gift. Behold is the first word in Genesis 1.29 that the Lord God speaks to Adam and Eve after he has blessed them. I bless you, I give you this work to do, and then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. And then a few verses later, ending the paragraph, God saw everything that he had made and behold... Notice, don't get so busy, look at it, take it in. It's the parent at Christmas when, you know, when the parent gives the, the, the little guy the, the big fire truck with 15 batteries in the bottom that runs all over and makes all kinds of noises, and there's this one button that if you push it, but that button's like hidden around on the side, right? And the dad's like, hey, son, come here, don't miss this button over here. And you push that button, and it does all those things all at once, Right? This is God the Father saying, Behold, look, I've given you all this. Look at everything I've made. It's very good. Behold is not always about God's judgment. It, because it interrupts us doesn't mean it's negative. It means it's helping us not to suffer an opportunity cost with God in life. It's also what one might call the first word of new creation. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is resurrected. He comes back. The disciples come to him. They fall down. They worship him. He tells them a sentence or two that have basically three things. The first one is statement of reality. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is reality. Secondly, then, a charge. Make disciples, baptize, teach. And then, after a statement of reality, after a charge... Then, the thing that matters the most, behold, I am with you always. Imagine the rest of it without the behold bit. Terrifying, right? Good luck with that. But you put the behold bit in, and it changes the whole landscape. 
We need it, friends. We need, in our case, to learn the habit of silence in order to be able to behold. We're so distracted. We're so busy. Our culture is so good at distracting us. We need to create the habit of silence in order that we might behold, in order that we might see what God has done, is doing, and expect him to show up and do some more. Here's a last example. In Luke, Jesus at one point, he says, says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. Why? For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. God is at work. Crazy world, layers upon layers upon layers of upheaval. Don't know whether they will work for good or not. God, nonetheless, is on the move. The kingdom of God is here. It's breaking in. It's present. God wants to use his church, and it starts at the core, deepest level. In our hearts, as the kingdom of God is within us. And we learn to keep silence in order that we can behold. So practical terms, how do you do it? Make a start, number one, just make a start. Keep silence for short bits. Get a timer and let the timer keep the time for you so you're not checking the clock, so you're not sitting there going, my word, it must have been 10 minutes, I've got to get to work, when it's only been 30 seconds, and trust me, that will happen. Give yourself something to behold. Get a verse of scripture in front of you, a cross, an icon, something that you can literally sit and behold. You don't bear the burden of producing something inside yourself. Here's a lovely icon. It's a lovely scene from the scriptures. And you just sit with it. No pressure. You're not performing. Just being. Well, I don't feel anything. I don't know. It's all right. Just enter the space. Here's what I do every morning. First, I pray. My prayers are really simple. They go like this. Thank you. It's another day. I'm still here. I'm glad about that. Thank you. Some very basic thank you stuff. I'm not kidding. Car in the shop. Thank you that I can walk. Thank you that I have a bicycle. Thank you that I have a car to bother with in the first place. I say thank you somehow. Second, here I am, Lord, meaning this is what's on my mind, my heart. This is how troubled I am. This is what I'm happy about. This is what I'm scared of. Third, wait in silence and listen. I'm not being overdramatic, friends. If I didn't do this, I would not have made it to this point. I mean, as in, I have not one uncle who's killed himself. It's in, it's in, it's in my family. It, this has kept me alive, soul and body, and it will do the same for you. I sit in silence, I wait and listen. And then I say prayers of praise. Just naturally, not, oh, right, now's the time where I have to praise. What am I going to praise God for? And I just praise him as is suited to whatever we're talking about together in that moment. And then I note in my soul the one thing, whatever it is, that comes out of that. The one thing. Then I go to Scripture. 
And I go slow. You've heard me say this before. I go slow. I'll tell you a secret. I don't follow the lectionary readings, and I'm a priest, for crying out loud. I go slow. I do pay attention to larger context. I always am aware of the larger context. But I have no particular goal. I'm just reading it as it speaks to me. And when I've read what seems to be a soul's worth for that time, which is typically short, and I read contemplatively, then I, I, I come to the sort of the close of that idea, and I let it be. And then I go back to whatever it is that stood out to me the most, and especially if I think it's weird, I dig on it a little bit, just a little bit. And then I sit in silence and I listen. And then I typically say, wow. It doesn't take me as long as you might think. It doesn't take the same amount of time every day. It's more about attention than it is about time. In other words, this is not something that has to take a long time, but it is, it is a dropping into attention. The, the one sport I've never tried that I would love, love, love to try is the biathlon. You guys are love the Winter Olympics. Anybody else love the biathlon? Everybody know what the biathlon is? I mean, I grew up in North Carolina. I had no idea what the biathlon is. Biathlon is this thing where they cross-country ski, and then they stop, and they target shoot. Right? I love to cross-country ski. I grew up in the South. I, you know, my gun is at my parents' house in North Carolina. But, you know, I like to target shoot. I would love to try the biathlon someday. Biathletes are amazing because cross-country skiing gets your pulse moving and your heart moving. They can stop, breathe, and settle because if your heart's bouncing, you're, you won't be able to target shoot because your rifle will wiggle and you won't know it. They can go drop their pulse rate and shoot. This is what it's like for me. It's not about a long time. It's about drop the pulse rate, settle down, sit before the Lord, give attention, and listen. That's what it is. For Sarah Maitland, her journey into silence began positively, as she puts it. Again, her journey into silence is not about turning her off. It began positively in a way that surprised her a great deal. We're going to close with this, and then we'll keep silence together for just two minutes. She says, my daughter was born in 1973. Looking back now, I know that my first experiences of positive, nourishing silence were her night feeds. This is, this is the Marian Sunday. We lit the lovely rose-colored candle. We had the lessons and the emphasis on Mary receiving the blessing of the Lord and the Annunciation and taking on that incredible call. We blessed pregnant mothers. Sarah Maitland's first positive experience of silence was in that time. She says her husband's great-grandfather was a carpenter. He made furniture, and when they got married, he sent over from New England a lovely four-poster bed made of bird's-eye maple with golden candy-twist posts. In the soft darkness of the pre-dome, propped up in this beautiful bed with my beautiful daughter, contentedly dozing, I encountered a new sort of joy. From where I am now, this does not surprise me. 
Because that relationship between mother and child is one of the oldest and most endearing images of silence in Western culture. In about 2000 BC, one of the psalmists wrote, I have set my soul in silence and in peace. As the weaned child is on its mother's breast, so even is my soul. She goes on, she says, I remember it with an almost heartbreaking clarity. Some of it is simply physical. A full and contented baby falling asleep at the empty and contented breast. But even so, I now think that those sweet dawns, when it turned from dark to pale night, and we drifted back into our own separate selves without wrench or loss, were the starting point of my journey into silence. I'm a bit curious that it is the night feed, rather than any of the other times, that the weaned child lies in the mother's arms with its wide eyes somehow joyously unfocused. There's something about the dark itself and the quiet of the world, even in cities, at that strange time before the dawn. More particularly, you're awake to experience it solely and only because you are experiencing it. If the feeding were not happening, you would almost certainly be asleep, be absent from consciousness in a very real way. There is nothing else to do save be present. The time out of time and the quiet of night are fixed in my memory, along with the density of that particular silent joy. At the time, I did not recognize it for what I was, excuse me, for what it was, but I now know that it was an encounter with positive silence in an unexpected place. Friends, let's keep silence together. I'll keep an eye on the clock. You don't have to worry about it. invite you this morning to behold the manger. Mary kept silence. We're told that Mary pulled all these things together and treasured them in her heart in the midst of being a displaced person. She held on to them inside. I invite you to behold the manger. Behold God entering this world of pomp and circumstance, of marketing and amusement, of attitude and arrogance. Behold God entering in such profound humility. Keep silence with me for two minutes.